Well, good evening. Uh, could you uh, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4? That's where we're going to read out of tonight. We're beginning a new series of studies that I am calling Rediscovering Our Foundations. Tonight, I want to take you back in time to over 1,600 years ago. It was a time when the church was dealing with issues of faith, what they believed exactly. It was a time of struggle as the new emperor Constantine heard about all of the different factions that were within the Christian church, all the way from Constantinople to Alexandria, Egypt. The struggles were about what exactly do we believe in? What is considered Christian belief? The nature of God, the character of Christ, the idea of a trinity, which was so hard for so many to grasp. And so they discussed these issues and sometimes discussed them very vehemently. Down in Alexandria, Egypt, the pastor of one of the churches by the name of Arius disputed his bishop by the name of Alexander as to the character and nature of Jesus Christ. Arius contended that Jesus was not God, that Jesus was created by God, that he had a definite beginning. He did not pre-exist. He did not know all things. He was not omnipotent. This created a huge argument that eventuated in a council in 325 A.D. called the Council of Nicaea. 300 leaders from the Christian church convened in Asia Minor at the town of Nicaea. Arius was brought in. He didn't relent. He stated his position that Christ was not God, etc. And those 300 leaders promptly denounced his position as being blasphemy and they wrote a creed that did then and still now reflects the essentials of the historic Christian gospel. It is known as the Creed of Nicaea. Some of you will be familiar with it. It reads, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten by the Father, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic 
in those days meant universal. It doesn't have the same connotation as it does today. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now I wonder how we would have fared 1,600 years ago in that situation when these doctrines were being debated and disputed. I wonder if we would have enough discernment to say, I know what is right and what is wrong, or if we would slough it off and say, oh, who cares about doctrine? That's so technical. Let's just have a big group hug and we'll love each other, and this stuff doesn't matter. Bill Bennett has noted from time to time that um, America is dumbing down. He calls it the dumbing down of America, that we're becoming less literate, less knowledgeable, that a hundred years ago, the kids that were our kids' age knew so much more, etc. And, and I think he's right, but what concerns me even more than that is the church has become biblically illiterate. George Gallup, in one of his polls, has noted that four out of ten Americans, only four out of ten Americans, know that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Most Americans cannot name the four Gospels. Three out of ten teenagers know why Easter is celebrated. George Barna, who does Christian polling, said three in four Americans and nearly half of all born-again Christians believe the Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves. He goes on to say that a similar number, that is half of born-again Christians taken in this poll, deny the existence of the Holy Spirit and Satan. I have a sampling of some answers on college exams as to what certain students believed about the Bible. Very interesting. Here's some of the answers that were given at a college level. Moses went to Mount Sinai <laughs> to get the Ten Amendments. The first commandment is, Thou shalt humor thy father and mother. Moses died before he ever reached Canada, rather than Canaan. Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Jericho, not Jericho. The greatest miracle in the Bible is when Joshua told his son to stand still and he obeyed him. And Solomon, one of David's sons, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. No joke. Tonight, I take you to 2 Timothy chapter 4 as we begin this series. He says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. 
But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Tonight I want to begin where I think Paul begins in this fourth chapter that he writes to young Timothy who is a pastor in Asia Minor, probably Ephesus. And that is a concern for knowing the truth. Uh, if, If Paul wanted Timothy to preach the word, it's because Paul wanted the congregation that Timothy preached to to know the word, to know the truth. Now Jude, you may remember, wrote something very similar. In his little epistle, verse 3, he said, Contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. A better translation might be, Put up a good fight and a defense for the faith, the faith once for all delivered. What is the faith? What is the truth? The faith and the truth are found in this little phrase in verse 1. The Word. Preach the Word. He didn't say, Timothy, preach your own opinion. Uh, Preach uh, what the committees of the church have agreed on. He said, preach the Word. Now, I cannot speak for everyone here tonight as to what you believe. I, frankly, don't know what you believe. Unless I know you personally. I don't know what you believe. I can't say what we believe. And frequently people will come up with this question, I want to know what Calvary teaches. That's an irrelevant question. The issue is what the Bible declares God to be and what the Bible declares Jesus to be and what the Bible declares the Holy Spirit to be and what the Bible declares the church to be and what the Bible declares heaven and hell to be. So I can't speak for all of Calvary. I can only speak for what I see by God's grace is what the Bible declares. Now there's a word in this uh, section we read. It's the word doctrine. Can you find it? In verse 3 is a, one of the appearings. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. There's a lot of people that hate that word. It's a good word. I don't know why they hate it so much, but it's just a word that means instruction or teaching. Didaskalia. Doctrine. It's actually the same word in verse 1 where he says, Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Is the old King James. Here it says teaching. Look back in verse 16 of chapter 2. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness that the man of God, and I'll add because there are women of God, that the man and woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And though that is true, though this is a great word and a great concept, there are people who still, 
in the church of Christ have such warped sentiments like, who cares about doctrine? That's stuffy, technical stuff. That's so irrelevant. That's really not the issue. When Paul says it is the issue. You know, sort of like when you buy a gadget. You know what comes with a gadget? It's called a manual. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I hate manuals because sometimes the manuals are bigger than the gadget. You might have a laptop that's that thick and a manual that's that thick. And I think, I don't want to read through this thing. For Christmas, my wife got me this really cool coffee maker. It came with a manual and a video. <laughs> so I thought, I may be in trouble here. But I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll plug it in. I can figure this thing out. I couldn't. So I had a manual and a video. Which do you think I went for? The video. That's our culture, man. So I plugged it in, watched the video, thought, I have it wired, tried to do it, couldn't figure it out. I had to go back to the manual. And that's my concern tonight. My concern is that the manual of truth is more and more being disregarded by the church of Jesus Christ on this earth. You know... There are some people who believe and actually teach, preach, that what you feel is more important than what you know. As long as you feel good about it, who cares the knowledge stuff, the doctrine stuff? What you feel is more important than what you know. And so you have a generation of people that are long on zeal and short on facts, very enthusiastic, but they're hazy when it comes to scriptural truth. However, I remind you what God said through the prophet Hosea. Chapter 4, the prophet says, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. In Acts chapter 4, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, Until I come, give attention to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. In Titus chapter 2, verse 1, Paul said, Teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. I don't know. Do you think doctrine is important? Given what the Bible says itself, is it important? It is essential. It is far more than important. James Montgomery Boyce wrote, We do not have a strong church today, nor do we have many strong Christians. We can trace the cause to an acute Lack of sound spiritual knowledge. Ask an average Christian to talk about God. And after getting past the expected answers, you will find that his God is a little God of vacillating sentiments. When it comes to this stuff, ignorance is not bliss. It's dangerous. It's essential to know the truth. You know, there were four occasions, I counted them this week, where Jesus rebuked religious leaders for not knowing what the book says. Four different times he asked them, Have you not read what Moses said? Did not you read this and that? Four times. So I wonder if the Lord might ask us that same question in situations where we're plagued with, What do we do about that? Haven't you read What do I do about this relationship? Well, haven't you read what's in the book? Or the times Paul wrote to the church and said, Now, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the coming of the Lord. 
Or, brethren, I write these things so that you won't be ignorant about spiritual gifts. I've always found it fascinating that the, the two things Paul specifically said we shouldn't be ignorant about, the church is most ignorant about. The coming of Christ and spiritual gifts. Now, as a pastor, I want to echo the words of Paul. I don't want you and myself to be ignorant concerning spiritual truth. My heart's desire is that you will be the best-fed congregation as well as the best-loved congregation in this state. And that's why we plow through the Bible like we do. That's why we give attention to language and background and context and the sense of a word and, and all through the Bible. That's what Wednesday nights are all about, line on line, verse by verse, line upon line, the Old Testament as well as the New. In the year 1636, which was 16 years after our pilgrim forefathers landed on Plymouth Rock, they erected a school of higher learning. They named it after a young minister, a pastor by the name of John Harvard. And yes, that is the university that bore his name, Harvard University. Now they built this school after they built homes and churches, places of worship. They wanted to construct a school for this intention, they wrote. Dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. Harvard University was erected so that ministers wouldn't be spiritually illiterate in order that their congregations wouldn't be spiritually illiterate. I'll tell you what, if I have a legacy, that's the one I want. I want to leave a group of people who are spiritually literate, who love and know and do the truth. That's what John said. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. I need to ask before we move on, uh, how do you fare, how do you do when you're in a situation that requires Bible knowledge? I'm not asking you, are you Theodore Theologian? That's not the issue. But in... In an issue when spiritual stuff is brought up in the conversation and all eyes are on you, I wonder what you answer. When somebody attacks the Bible and they say, oh, it's just another man-written book. It's not inspired by God. I wonder if you can defend a biblical position. Or when there's a knock on the door and the cultist walks up or bicycles up, whichever if you can adequately defend the deity of Christ. So that's the concern, the concern for knowing the truth. Preach the word. Of course, the concern is so the congregation would know it. Now, I want to look at the next couple of verses, which really deal with the consequences of neglecting the truth. And I think this has special application today. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now, what is he referring to? He's referring to a time, whatever time that is, certainly I think we're in it, where people will say no to God's truth. They'll turn away from hearing the doctrines that are in the Scripture, the truth that is in the Bible. They'll turn away from it. They want something more palatable, easier. 
It's the doctrine of chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine. That's what he has in mind. People will turn away from the truth, the doctrine that is in the Bible. Is that possible? No, we know it is. Because it's all around us today. Places of worship... Churches, denominations that were at one time founded by godly, Bible-believing people have, many of them, turned away from sound doctrine. McCall's Magazine ran a survey where they surveyed 3,000 Protestant ministries. They said, quote, A considerable number of these rejected altogether the idea of a personal God. God, they said, was the ground of being, the force of very Star Wars-ish in their theology, the force of life, the principle of love. 56% of these ministries rejected the virgin birth. 71% rejected the idea of life after death. 54% rejected the bodily resurrection of Christ. 98% rejected that there would be a personal return of Jesus Christ to this earth. That's the state of the church. The time will come, young Timothy... You preach the word because there's coming a time when people won't put up with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine means healthy doctrine. The Greek word is, is hugiano. We get the word hygienic from it. Clean. It's clean. It's healthy. It's sound. Now, why, why would people turn away from healthy, sound doctrine? You know why? Think about it. It's pretty easy to figure out. Because sound doctrine rebukes their ungodliness. That's why. Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Neither would they come to the light, lest their deeds should be exposed. So anyone who lives contrary to sound doctrine will hate Bible teaching, will hate doctrinal preaching. They'll resist it. But there are grave consequences to turning away from the truth because, you know, whenever you turn away from the truth of the Word of God, you are now open up to any lie. And anytime you turn away from the truth, there's always somebody waiting there to hand you a bill of goods to give you a substitute. Paul the Apostle in Ephesians chapter 4 wrote that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness in which they lie in wait to deceive. What a picture. There's people waiting for those to turn away from the truth to fill you with all sorts of new ideas that are contrary to sound doctrine. There's a story about a farmer who just got tired of paying the high prices for oats to feed his mules. So he took oats and he substituted sawdust into the oats mixed it, and eventually put more sawdust than oats, and eventually all sawdust. By the time the mule ate the sawdust to be completely satisfied, he was dead. And that happens spiritually. When you reject the nourishment of truth from the Word of God and feed on error, though you might not see it right away, it's slow as it creeps in especially when it deals with essential historic Christian doctrine, you'll die spiritually. It'll kill you.
I have thought this week, as I do now, of Christians who once read their Bibles all the time, were in love with God, they opened it daily, they went to bed with it, and now their appetite has been replaced with apathy. I've thought this week about churches, as I mentioned, who once were evangelical churches teaching and preaching the Bible. Now they loathe it. They don't include it except maybe a little homily of a minute or two. And the rest is the opinion of man. Many won't endure sound doctrine today. In fact, I've discovered something just as a speaker to groups all over the world. You know, we as human beings have a built-in resistance to the truth. I think in an average church, if you were to cut the sermon way, way, way down and just put more stuff and other music and uh, announcements even and plays, people would say, that's all right. Or if you were to take out expositional preaching and substitute words from the Lord, prophecies, people, that's fine. But if you were to reverse that and put sound expositional preaching and outweigh everything else in the service and cut back on the songs, you would have a furor. People wouldn't go for it. I had talked to a pastor a couple years ago who was actually asked to leave his church by his elders because he preached too long. I said, you got to be kidding. How long did you go? A couple hours? He goes, no, I went over 20 minutes. And because I went over 20 minutes, they said, you're preaching too long. What would his board do in my church? <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 5, the Lord says, An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule by their own power And my people love to have it so. My people love to have the false prophecies take over the truth. My people love it when people make stuff up. They love it. Years ago, when Nathan was much younger than he is now, he's driving now, so please pray not only for my driving but his. (laughs) I, I remember we sat down at the dinner table and we had the meal prepared, and there was asparagus. Now, I love asparagus. He hated asparagus. He loathed it. But he had his eye on the muffins and the jam that were on there. And so he'd load his plate up with muffins and jam and put like a little broken asparagus tip (laughs) on the plate. Now, as much as I love muffins and jam, to eat all muffins and jam isn't a balanced diet. And today, I think there are many Christians who will not endure sound asparagus, if you know what I mean, (laughs) where you get the nutrition, the nutrients, the fiber, the life-giving elements, but they go for the muffins and the jam only. I hope that you will develop an appetite for the truth. And this is what I mean by that, for the whole truth. Nothing but the truth. So help you God. For all of the Bible, for the whole counsel of God, not just a a, a late night psalm or an early morning snack in a proverb, but the entire Bible. I pray that you'll become like Jeremiah who said, Your words were found and I did eat them, and they were the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. Another poll that I found suggests that only 25% of born-again Christians read their Bibles every day. Listen to that again. 
25% of born-again Christians, these are the kind that will vocally say, I'm, I'm born again. I'm not just a Christian, I'm born again. And I salute that, but only 25% of that group say they read their Bible every day. 57% don't read it other than a church. 32% find it too difficult to understand. Some don't even bring it to church. Love the Word. Don't neglect it. And then, that's just the first step, isn't it? Because once we know it and we love it, then we've got to do it. Be doers of the Word, not hearers only, like James said, lest you be deceived. So when I say I pray that you'll get an appetite for the truth, for the Word of God, it's more than just give me a good sermon, preacher. In the book of Ezekiel, God says through that prophet, they come to you, that is you, Ezekiel, as people do, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. Evidently, Ezekiel was a captivating prophet, an orator, and people loved to listen to Ezekiel give a sermon. And God says, that's a problem. It ends at the door. They love the oratory of you, Ezekiel, but they don't go and obey what they have heard. I pray your appetite for the Word will be an obedient appetite. Third, and we'll close with this, the calling to nurture the truth. Now look in verse 5. After saying what he just said, there's a word of contrast. But you... But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my death, really, his departure, is at hand. This, by the way, was his final work. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Timothy, I'm going to be dead soon, young man. And there is a danger in neglecting the truth. But you, Timothy, in contrast to those who will not endure sound doctrine, you, on the other hand, young man, are to hold fast to it, to nurture it, to feed on it. Because you'll be able to endure affliction by it. You'll be able to become all that God has in store for your life. And and then Paul, really in verse 6 and 7 and 8, uses himself as an example I have fulfilled my role in life. I have finished the race, all because I have kept the faith. I've been able to endure all that bad stuff and look in the face of death to the future with joy because I've kept the faith. So that's our calling. Our calling is to know the truth, to believe the truth, to love the truth, and to speak the truth. That's the calling of the church. And there are benefits to it. I want to just sort of close this introductory message tonight, giving you briefly the benefits of loving and believing and nurturing the truth. First one is pretty obvious, we all know, salvation. The first benefit is that it brings salvation. When you first heard the gospel, something inside of you said, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you need to do something. Yeah, you need to receive Christ right now. And you did. And you know what? You're different. You got changed. It changed your mind, your attitudes, your behavior. You saw that change. Others saw the change in you. 
The power of the gospel to transform a life and cause repentance. It brings salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Number two, it brings joy. It brings joy. Truth is not boring. I know some theologians work hard at making it boring. But it is not boring. If we get out of the way and let the truth be the truth, it's exciting. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you boring. No, the truth will set you free, said Jesus. Jeremiah once again said, Your words were found, and I did eat them, and they were the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. The longest psalm ever written, Psalm 119, David repeatedly talks about the joy that God's truth, God's commandments, God's precepts gives him. In Psalm 19, he writes, The statutes of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. What about those two guys on the road to Emmaus when Jesus came up to them and started talking to them? After he left, they said, Did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us along the way and opened to us the Scripture? Joy. Salvation, joy. Third benefit, direction. As you and I listen to the truth of God, whether in quiet time or in a message, week by week, day by day, as we listen to it, as we assimilate it, as we apply it, as we do it, it begins to form a grid through which we filter every single experience, a worldview, a lens, so that we see clearly the world around us. And it gives us direction for our lives. This third proverb Some of you know it well, at least the last part of what I'm going to read, not the first part perhaps, but Solomon says, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them, mercy and truth, bind them around your neck. Wear them as a tablet of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. We often quote only that, neglecting to see the context is those who love God's truth and bind it around their hearts. That's how you get direction. I am still amazed at how discipleship takes place whenever the Bible is taught. Just the direction that people get. Just You go through the Bible, you teach it. Even without a discipleship group or one-on-one mentoring, just the impact of going through the Bible to disciple a Christian is powerful. Number four... It promotes victory in spiritual battles. You have an edge when you know the Bible, when you know the truth. Why? Because you know Satan's strategies. You're aware of them. You won't be victimized by your feelings when you're being tempted. You'll know what to do with that. Paul spoke about spiritual warfare and the armor. And he said, put upon you the belt of truth. Gird yourself or wrap yourself around with the belt of truth. I wanted to read this to you. It's Psalm 91, verse 4. I found it so so potent. It says, The Lord will shield you with His wings. He will shelter you with His feathers. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. God's truth, His promises, are your armor and protection. 
I think Jesus believed that, don't you? What did he do when Satan attacked him? He didn't say, well, you know, I think... No, he said, it is written, right? Quoted scripture. Number five, it will enhance your growth. It will enhance your growth. You will become, as you love, know, believe, and speak the truth, spiritually mature. You've heard the old saying, you are what you eat. It's true, even spiritually. If your diet is spiritual junk food, all you're eating is the world's media and the world's values, you will reflect that. You will be weak and anemic as a Christian. If, on the other hand, your diet is spiritual truth, it will impact the way you live. That will reflect as well. You will become like what you hear. That's why in John 17, Jesus prayed, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's why Peter wrote, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That's how you grow spiritually, by the truth of the word of God. Having said that, I want to close with a letter that was written to a newspaper called the British Weekly years ago by a guy who, like many, don't really care much for Bible truth or sermons in church. He'd probably rather just have a church where it's all, thus saith the Lord, a few dances, a lot of music, hip-hop, and you're out. And so he writes the newspaper, Dear Sirs, I have noticed that ministers seem to set a great deal of importance on their sermons and spend a great deal of time in preparing them. I have been attending services quite regularly for the past 30 years, and during that time, uh, if I estimate correctly, I have listened to no less than 3,000 sermons. But, to my consternation, I discover that I cannot remember a single one of them. So I wonder if a minister's time might be more profitably spent on something else. Sincerely. Well, this was printed. Others wrote in response for weeks. Some got angry. Some agreed. But finally, this letter was sent that ended the debate. My dear sir, in response to the first guy's letter, I have been married for 30 years. During that time, I have eaten 32,850 meals, mostly of my wife's cooking. Suddenly, I have discovered that I cannot remember the menu of a single meal. And yet, I have received nourishment from every one of them. I have the distinct impression that without them, I would have starved to death long ago, sincerely. The issue isn't, can you remember the three points and the poem? The issue is, does that truth add to your grid, and are you doing something with that truth in order to make that happen? I'll give you some practical suggestions. I would encourage either taking notes on the back of this, that's what lines are for, rather than here's my phone number, (laughs) to actually take notes, to have a notebook. Then I would encourage that you look up the references that are spoken in the message, actually read them on your own. And then apply them to your life, like taking the questions that are at the bottom of the outline and actually applying that through the week. That's how you'll grow. And that's the reason some grow fast and some grow slow, because some have a real hunger and an appetite and others do not. Study to show 
yourself approved to God. As we get back to the foundations. Heavenly Father, of all of the ages that have ever existed on earth, of all of the countries that are on earth, it is this age and this country that has been most blessed with resources. There are more churches, there are more Bible bookstores, there are more teaching tapes and sermons, and so readily available. So readily available. Which means, to whom much has been given, much shall be required. It would only make sense that we would be the strongest spiritually of of any other believer around. Sometimes that's true and sometimes that's not. And it's my prayer, Lord, as the pastor of this fellowship, that we will give ourselves to truth. To find out what does the book say? What is the heart of God? That we will not become like so many who will not endure sound doctrine. And Lord, if we have developed itching ears, I pray they'd be undeveloped. And we would develop a strong appetite. Because the only way to know you is through your word. And the only valid experiences are those that can be substantiated by your word. So help us to know it, Lord, to form that grid whereby we can look at all of life, every situation, every circumstance, and filter it through your truth to know what to do and get direction from you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.